Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex-positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang-ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex-savvy. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick-Anderson. Today, we are going to be talking about talking about sex. We're going to be talking about talking about sex with children. I'm going to talk with you about child and adolescent sexual development. So you know what is concerning, what is normative, and how to distinguish between the two. I'm also going to be talking about when and how and what to say to your kids about sex at different stages of development. So thanks for listening and let's get sex savvy. One of the first things that happens when people realize that I'm a sex therapist is that they'll start asking questions about their kids and whether a particular behavior should be worrisome. My son did this. I heard my daughter talking about that. I witnessed my two-year-old doing this. And are these things normal and healthy and developmentally appropriate for their age? And parents seem to get very, very concerned about expressions of sexuality in young children. And they're always seeking reassurance that their kids are not disturbed or weird or developing in a way that could be a red flag for their sexual well-adjustment in the future. Also, family and friends have been reaching out to me for over 20 years, wanting to know if some behavior that they noticed in their kid is something to be concerned about. And lately, I've been noticing emails and phone calls from my listeners asking some of the same questions. So I decided to spend a little bit of time talking about child and adolescent sexual development In case you, my listeners, have any similar concerns, and I'm going to be also addressing some of the questions that other listeners have sent in. So I'll just start by saying that children are sexual beings, not in the way you and I are sexual beings. They're cognitively ill-equipped to appreciate the concept of sexuality as we understand it, but they're born with sensory capacity that allows them to feel things in their body that feel good, but they don't think of it or understand it as sexual per se. From infancy to one year, babies are quite responsive to stimulation in a way that we as adults might think is sexual. In fact, I mentioned in an earlier episode that boys can have erections in utero, even before they're born. A lot of little boys get erections from nursing because breastfeeding is very soothing. It's a neurologic response. It's not a sexual or erotic response. At about eight months, 
kids or babies, infants, their hand can reach below the midline and they're no longer fisted. You may recall that newborns often have a closed fist and they're just sort of flailing. But at about eight months, they can open their hands in a way that allows them to be more dexterous and they suddenly can reach below the midline and they can discover pleasure from touching themselves. It goes from random to where they just happen to find their genitals to more purposeful and ultimately serves as a self-soothing mechanism like sucking their thumb. At about a year and a half to two years, you may recall a lot of kids walk around with their hands in their pants, especially boys. I raised three sons, and I remember my two older boys sitting on the couch. Uh, They're very close in age, and both of them had their hands in their pants. (laughs) That's not anything to be concerned about if you have a little boy who's often holding or touching his genitals. That doesn't mean he's going to grow up to be a predator or a rapist. Especially when kids are tense or tired, they may seek self-soothing by rubbing a blankie or a teddy bear between their legs. A lot of girls will use stuffed animals and just rub up against them. Boys tend to use their own hand more, but either can happen in either gender. At around age two to three, kids become exhibitionistic. They love an audience. They're filled with curiosity. They love to talk about it, show it, ask questions. Where do babies come from? Can I see your penis? Why do you have hair? Well, I have hair. Why do you pee standing up? I want to have a bath with, you know, Susie or Johnny, who may be older siblings. Many parents are negative about masturbation because they were shamed when they were young about masturbation by their sexually inhibited parents. So many parents impulsively or instinctively remove, physically remove a child's hand from their genitals or even slap their hand or tell them that that's dirty. I've had lots and lots of patients who've told me that their mothers had them wash their hands after they were caught masturbating, especially girls. Women have told me that their moms, if they found them touching their genitals, would make them wash their hands and repurify themselves. So kids learn to do it in private because they get the sense that their parents disapprove either through a subtle means or through these overt means. And to try to teach a young, young child, a toddler, the difference between privacy and shame, it can be tricky. So if your child is having his or her hand in their pants a lot, you just want to say to them that that's normal, that's their body, that they own their body, and that it can feel nice to touch their body in certain ways, but that they have to do that in private. So you want to instill freedom, but also discretion at the same time. And that can be tricky. You're not going to stop it and nor should you try to. From a very young age, kids internalize this notion that sex is dirty and wrong, which is a shame. And by age five, kids will know that 
you know, that's a dirty joke. Early sexuality is very body sensation centered. It's all about the child. It's not based on gender or orientation or intention. There's no script. There's no arousal template or sexual map. And it's not sexual per se until it's learned to be associated with sex. And that comes at a little bit later of an age. By age three, kids develop a sense of gender identity. Most kids celebrate their own gender in spite of parents' attempts to raise them gender neutral. I've had parents say to me, oh, we gave our son, you know, gender neutral toys. And in spite of that, he was drawn to the truck. Or we tried to give our daughter blocks so she could build and do engineering stuff. And all she wanted to do was play with the doll. So there is some innate differences between boys and girls. And parents can do all they want to instill gender neutral notions, but don't be surprised if the hard wiring and genetic programming trumps some of your socialization. We've all heard of the Oedipal complex, which is another Freudian term where he suggests that boys fall in love with their mothers and little girls fall in love with their fathers. That would be the Electra complex. And that at a certain stage of development, boys and girls want to become the suitor, the lover, the primary partner, and have their same-sex parent disappear. (laughs) For girls, it's a little bit easier of a task because they don't have to separate the way that boys do. Because moms tend to be the primary caregiver regardless of the gender of the child, girls can remain identified with the mother. Boys have to switch over or cross over and give up their primary identification with the mother. And Freud identified this as a trauma. As a society, we tend to treat masculinity as fragile. We will dress girls in blue, but we will not dress boys in pink. Feminine behavior is considered childlike, and masculine behavior is considered adult-like behavior. And that's why we tell little boys, don't cry, be a strong soldier, suck it up, be a man. But if a little girl cries, we don't say that. During the Oedipal phase, issues of modesty become addressed. Dads stop bathing little girls. And we do this to contain the Oedipal feelings. We, as the adults, are the providers of safety. At age 6 to 10, kids tend to line up with same-gender friends. So prior to age 6, boys and girls play together. And then at around 6, 7, the girls go off and the boys go off. And the boys have cooties and the girls have cooties. And the playing together typically stops around school age where the girls group off and the boys group off. And kids tend to take a great deal of pleasure in this rigidity where they might say, boys rule, girls drool. And the girls might say the same thing, but the opposite. Boys tend to be physical, active, and utilizing motor skills, whereas girls tend to be more relational verbal. They tend to giggle amongst themselves and practice social skills. And the C divides. 
boys and girls tend to have their separate corners from age six to about 10 or 11. When puberty kicks in, boys and girls suddenly don't think of the other as having cooties any longer, and they become interested in the other sex in a new way. There actually are some indicators of worrisome behavior. And one of the things that serve as a red flag is if a child is engaging in repetitive, compulsive, sexual pleasuring that appears to be impervious to intervention. So if you have a little girl in first grade who's masturbating throughout the entire day, and even when her teachers explain to her that that's something she needs to do in private, She just doesn't seem to be able to stop. Because we think of masturbation or self-stimulation in children as a self-soothing body regulator, if they're engaging in this all the time, it suggests some sort of distress or anxiety. Imagine if they were sucking their thumb all day long, we would also be concerned about the level of tension or distress. So that can be a red flag especially, as I said, if it's impervious to intervention and feels compulsive. There are three signs of what I call normative behavior that can help parents determine whether or not there may be a problem. As I said in my intro, kids will be curious. Kids are sexual beings. They will explore each other's bodies. This is considered normative and conventional. We've all heard of kids or might remember in our own lives playing doctor. This is considered a predictable, normative behavior if the children are roughly the same age. So a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old playing doctor, I would not be the slightest bit concerned about that. But if you have a seven-year-old and a 13-year-old or a seven-year-old and a 16-year-old, then obviously that's a problem. We consider roughly the same age to be give or take two years. So if you have a seven and a nine-year-old exploring each other's bodies, that's not necessarily problematic. But if you go much beyond two years, then it ends up falling into the category of what we call power differential, where there could be some coercive component to it and it's no longer mutual. The power differential makes it sort of inherently abusive and manipulative. Another thing we try to assess is whether the behaviors that children are engaging in sexually are what we consider age-appropriate behaviors. So what I mean by this is, is this something that they might discover on their own, be curious about naturally, sort of the classic, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. These are things that are expected that we would, you know, sort of think that kids would figure out and happen upon on their own. So we want to think about discovery, natural discovery versus something that they clearly must have been exposed to. So if two six-year-olds are engaging in some sort of anal play where they're inserting objects into each other's anuses, that's probably not something that they 
just naturally figured out on their own. It's probably something that they were exposed to either in porn or witnessed in real life or most disturbingly had done to them. And so you want to tease out the nature of the exploration of the sexual specific behaviors or activities and determine if this is something that the average seven-year-old would be curious about or if this is something that this seven-year-old definitely learned from an adult. And in that circumstance, that's clearly not normative and would be indicative of some sort of abuse or molestation. I want to move on now and talk about phases of adolescent sexual development. There are three phases. It doesn't have much to do with other people, and it certainly doesn't have much to do with any kind of intimacy or deep connection. The second phase of adolescent development is the mid-phase, and this is where experimentation with others starts to occur. There's pursuit of a sexual role. There may be interest in other people, but the people are somewhat interchangeable. It's sort of like flavor of the week. So it might be Cindy, it might be Betsy, it might be Debbie. The person is less relevant than the experimentation. It tends to be devoid of intimacy for the most part, and it's more of a sort of rehearsal or practice of more mature kinds of relationship roles. Then there's the what we call the late phase of adolescent development, which tends to fuse sexuality and intimacy together for the first time. And these adolescents are forming a genuine attachment. So the people become less interchangeable, and it's really about John or about Dave as a person rather than a guy or a girl. And this is where teens tend to feel like they're falling in love with someone as opposed to falling in love with the idea of having a partner or having someone to experiment with sexually. I want to talk about puberty and what's going on and how boys and girls experience puberty differently and some of the major concerns that both boys and girls worry about. For girls, breast size tends to be something that they focus on a lot. No girl wants to be flat-chested, but no one wants to be the girl with the largest chest because along with that often comes unwanted sexual attention from boys. Girls are always waiting for their period to start. And again, they prefer to be in the middle of the pack. They don't want to be the first girl to get her period, but they certainly don't want to be the last girl to get her period as well. In terms of menstruation, I hear lots of women recall fears around having accidents at school where they bleed through. One of my female patients told me that she was wearing white shorts to school and they were on the trampoline in PE. And as she was jumping up and down, the girls were giggling and she didn't know why. When she came off the trampoline, 
she realized that her period had started for the first time and there was visible blood that was staining through her white shorts. She said it was absolutely humiliating. When girls start menstruating, often they tell their moms and their moms will give them pads, but not always tampons from the beginning. And this is because parents worry about toxic shock syndrome and they have concerns that their daughters are going to be responsible enough, especially if they're quite young when their period starts, whether they'll be responsible to change their tampons quickly enough and uh, not allow them to remain inside for too long, which increases the risk of toxic shock syndrome. Some moms don't give their daughters tampons because they don't want them to know that there's a hole. True. I've heard this. Some moms feel like if their daughters use tampons, then they're not virgins. Some girls worry about, will it come out of my mouth? Where does it go? What if I can't get it out? So using tampons can be a bit traumatic for young teens. In terms of boys, pubic hair is a treasured and high status thing for boys. Their voice deepens. All three of my boys went through a phase where they sort of projected a deeper voice just to sound older or more pubescent when they hadn't indeed actually started to experience a voice change. Spontaneous erections can be very burdensome for boys. They'll say that, you know, they got called up to the geometry board to solve an equation and they had an erection and they were completely self-conscious or humiliated that other boys or more importantly, girls might see that they were aroused. And this can be very, very embarrassing. During this later adolescent phase, teens tend to transfer their primary attachment from their parents to their peers. And this is healthy and actually necessary in terms of overall successful development. Peer identification is paramount for adolescents, and they tend to break away from the influence of their parents and be more influenced by their peers. They start to question authority, question the values that their parents instilled in them, and this is considered again, healthy and a normal and necessary part of development. It's very threatening for parents who see their children kind of slipping away from their sphere of influence. But in terms of the adolescent, it's a really healthy growth promoting and imperative phase of development. Sexual feelings are the main things that adolescents withhold from their parents. Suddenly they don't want them at the dance as chaperones. And this tends to continue even into adulthood where some adults don't want to have sex in their parents' house, even if they're married. In some way, it feels disloyal or disrespectful. And young adults have to go through this shift of alignment in order to have a healthy sex life in adulthood. One of the questions I hear all the time from friends, family, patients is, when is the right time? What is the right age to talk to their children about sex? And I answer in the exact same way every time. I say it's not a one-time talk. It's a lifelong conversation. And I really mean it. And I 
put my money where my mouth was, and I practiced what I preached, and I raised all three of my sons the same way to be literate about their bodies, responses in their bodies, their genitals, things that might feel good to them, from as young as they could comprehend, referred to their genitals with proper scientific names and terms. Why do we have cutesy, silly nicknames for vaginas and penises? Well, it's because we as parents feel uncomfortable because our parents felt uncomfortable And this inhibition and taboo and shame around sex gets passed down from generation to generation to generation. And with my three sons, I really tried to stop this and speak openly and honestly with them in the most casual way about changes in their body at different stages of their development. So for example, when I put my two-year-old son into the bathtub, and he would get an erection, I would say, you have an erection. That means your body's healthy. That means your body's working. That's nothing to be concerned about. You're a strong, healthy boy. When his little brother would get an erection, the older boy would say, congratulations, you got a direction. Very cute. He knew it sounded something like direction. He couldn't exactly remember the word. So he congratulated his younger brother for getting a direction. But I was always so proud of my boys for being open and not ashamed of their genitals. There are two books that I recommend. One, which is my favorite book, is by Dr. Ruth Westheimer, my inspiration and hero. She wrote a book for preschool-aged children called Who Am I? Where Did I Come From? And this is just the cutest book. I'm just going to read you one thing from the first page. She says, hi, my name is Dr. Ruth. In this book, I'm going to help you understand a new and important word, sex. She says, sex is a word that causes some people to become shy or hide their feelings, but you're not bothered by such a little word, are you? Why don't you say it out loud right now? Sex. You should never be afraid of words, whether they're long or short. And if you ever have a question about a word, then you should ask your mommy or daddy. You can trust them to tell you the truth. I just think that is so fabulous. I read this book to all three of my sons when they were preschoolers. There's another book I strongly recommend for late elementary or middle school. It's called Too Old for This Too Young for That, Your Survival Guide for the Middle School Years. It's by Harriet Mustache and Karen Unger. And this book is great because not only does it talk about puberty and what to expect, changes in your body, it also speaks about self-esteem, depression, stress and anxiety, dating, bullying, what is sexual harassment versus flirting, There's a section on drugs and alcohol. There's a section on online safety. They talk about privacy. There's even a really nice privacy contract in the book that you can photocopy and use in your family. So I love that book. There are tons and tons of great books out there. But if you're not sure what to say or what's appropriate at which developmental stage or if you feel awkward or clumsy or embarrassed, please get a good book and give your kids the gift of 
talking about sex. I could say that by first or second grade, all three of my boys would have been able to teach a very rudimentary biology class on sex ed. And that's because I spoke to them about sex like I would speak to them about anything else. There was no taboo, no shame. Once my son asked, do you and daddy have sex? And I said, yes, we do. And then he said, did you have sex yesterday? And I said, that's none of your business. So I'm trying to teach the difference between privacy and secrecy and boundaries. It's fine for our kids to know that we have a sexual life, but details about our sexual life, like when, why, how, that's not something that is helpful for them to understand. When I teach at the medical school at UCLA, I ask my medical students to raise their hand if they received any sort of helpful, formal sex ed in their home, and very few, if any, ever raise their hand. I take a sexual history from every patient that comes into my office, and you would not believe how many times I hear from men and women about how ill-equipped they were, how unprepared they were, how they hadn't been warned or hadn't received any guidance about things that were going to happen to them. I've treated dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of men who woke up after having their initial wet dream and thought that something terrible had happened, that they had some sort of horrible disease or that they were dying or that body parts were going to be falling off. I've talked to girls who hadn't been taught about menstruation and started bleeding from their vagina and thought that they had cancer or some other kind of horrible life-threatening illness. And these can be very traumatizing, scary times for kids. Even though nowadays in school, kids get sex ed, kids are developing sexually younger and younger and younger. And often they don't get any sex ed curriculum until, I don't know, fifth, sixth, seventh grade. Girls are getting their period at younger and younger ages, you know, second, third, fourth graders are starting to menstruate. Boys are developing pubic hair and having a wet dreams, you know, sometimes by 9, 10, 11 years old. So we don't think to talk to an eight-year-old about menstruation or a nine-year-old about, you know, having an orgasm in his sleep. But these things happen and kids have a right to be prepared so that they are able to manage and respond appropriately when these things do occur. I know that my boys really appreciated understanding what was going to happen. My youngest son would say to me, you know, when am I going to have my first wet dream? I haven't had it yet. And I'm, I'm really kind of excited and looking forward to it. And I thought, how cool is that, that my young teen can come to me and say that he's looking forward to having his first wet dream and wondering if it should have happened already because he was 13 at the time. And why hadn't that happened to him? And I think that that was just such a liberating and progressive interaction with my son. And I'm really proud of him and proud of myself for laying the foundation so that he felt comfortable enough to come to me and ask that question. Please, if you want your child to engage in safe sex, if you want your child to use appropriate and safe contraception, if you want your child to come to you 
if they think they might be pregnant, if you want your child to come to you, if they think that they might have crossed a boundary and disrespected someone without proper consent, if you want your kids to be respectful and enjoy and celebrate their sexuality and their sexual health, speak to them, talk to them now about sexual health, boundaries, consent, STDs, contraception, respect, health, grooming, pregnancy, rape. Talk to them, talk to them, talk to them. It will set the precedent that anything is discussable. And if they have a concern, they'll be able to come to you. I've had teenagers come to me and say, I think I might be pregnant, but I'm afraid to tell my mom. Or I have some bumps on my genitals, but I think if my dad knew, he'd kill me. So it's up to us to set that stage so children feel like they can approach us with questions and concerns and anxieties and pressures. Kids aren't going to naturally come to you if you haven't made it clear that you're open to those kinds of conversations. They will appreciate it. It's never too late. If you have children still in your home and you have neglected to have these conversations, it's not too late. If you have young children in your home, please start now. Give them that education, that framework, that context, that ownership, and teach them that sex is healthy and that pleasure is natural, but teach them also about boundaries and consent and privacy. And if we could convey to our children that it's natural to be curious, that the questions that they have are completely normal and their interest in experimenting and exploring their bodies and other people's bodies are 100% healthy, then what a different world it could be. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Sex Savvy. If you find value in this podcast, please like, follow, share, comment, or review on your favorite podcast app. Your participation helps keep Sex Savvy free and available to all who are interested. Kimberly and the entire Sex Savvy team appreciate your loyalty and support. 